Well, good morning. Um, glad you guys are all here. Um, my hope is that through gathering today that we can all know Jesus a little more, we can all grow in Jesus a little more, and we can all go share the hope found in Jesus. So today we're going to be in Acts chapter 14, and I got just a couple of verses, verses 21 and 22, but we're going to cover the, the whole chapter of Acts. Um, so we've got it pulled up there if you want to open your Bibles up. Acts chapter 14, verses 21 and 22. I'll give everybody a minute. All right, so Acts chapter 14, 21 and 22. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So to get things started off, we got this whole chapter and I was getting ready to, uh, you know, preparing the sermon. I kept reading the chapter and reading the chapter and reading the chapter. And I was like, man, what God, are you asking me to do? What, are, what am I going to preach on? What do you want to be shared? And this, these two verses stuck out to me. And we're going to get to why they stuck out to me and how they stuck out to me and, and all that. But to, to first kind of start things off with, um, I, I want to, you know, this, this whole fight night thing this, that I did. When I did the MMA fight and, and thought that I was an MMA fighter and was going to be awesome at it, and it didn't go so well, um, before, Tony and I were talking at service today, and, um, you know, before that, my actual fight, I remember sitting back to, in the room, and I thought, I'm going to use this as a platform to proclaim Jesus. So I remember sitting back there, and I've got my worship music playing, and others can hear it, and uh, I gather all the fighters and the coaches together, and we pray, and I thank Jesus, and, and I'm putting, you know, Jesus on display through all this, and then what happens next is I get knocked out in 12 seconds, and immediately I crumble. I break, I just fall to pieces. I'm worried about what everybody else is thinking and this whole idea of, of proclaiming Jesus is just totally gone. So that brings me to the, the question that, that I wanna kind of focus in on today and what we're gonna, we're gonna talk about in this passage and what I took out of it. And I've got it up there, just feel, click it. When I am most concerned with others' approval, am I reluctant to tell them about Jesus? Now, for me, that's a resounding yes, and the proof was in the pudding that when I was so worried about what everybody else thought of me getting knocked out and, and my pride got in the way, I didn't give glory or praise to Jesus in one bit. So that's going to kind of be where our focus is, is the approval of others and what's, what goes on there and, and all that jazz. So let's talk about, we're going to set the stage now for chapter 14, and, and Paul and Barnabas, Bar, Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas set out on a mission trip. They're going to go out to spread the gospel. And they head out into all these cities, and they come to um, Iconium, and they enter into the synagogue, and, and they spoke in such a way that people were coming to believe. They, they were coming to believe, and people had faith. And then what happens is these unbelieving Jews come along, and they kind of stir up the Gentiles because both Jews and Gentiles at this point were getting the word of God. They were getting the gospel brought to them and they were coming to faith. And these Jews come in and it says that they poisoned their minds. They poisoned the minds of all those people that Paul was just preaching to and sharing the gospel with. And verse three, I've got pulled up. It says, this is what they did next. 
They remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. So, in, in the midst of all this, what they do is, is they, they continue to what God asks them to do. They share the good news, and in doing so, God gives them the power of the Holy, by the Holy Spirit, of the Holy Spirit, to do signs and wonders as a confirmation of God's saving grace. And then what happens next? The people were divided. They were still divided. The Jews and the Gentiles were, were divided, and they come together, and they drive them out of town. They were going to stone Paul and Barnabas, and Paul and Barnabas flee to Lystra, to continue in the work of his grace. So now we're going to take a pause in the narrative, in the story, in the grand scheme of things here, of what's going on. And there's, there's a, a term out there that maybe you've heard. Uh, it's called groupthink. Um, if you've heard of it, I see some heads nodding. Um, and it's kind of what we got going on in the narrative here, in the, in the story. And I'm going to ask you guys to look for it, but what got me thinking about this group think and, and the direction of the sermon as I was trying to figure out what to preach on, um, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I'm on the road a lot, and I listen to a bunch of podcasts, and they had uh, the Joe Rogan podcast. And it's one that I'm a fan of. They talk fighting, they talk politics, they talk whatever. He has a bunch of different guests on. And they had a, a, the, the, the CEO of Twitter, his name's Jack Dorsey, and they had an independent journalist, and they had one of Jack's like, people there from his legal team. And they're in this debate about like Twitter and people getting off of Twitter and reasons why people are getting kicked off of Twitter. And they're going down this road of, of group think and what it is. And, and the, this independent journalist is asking like, why are you banning this person when this person has done this and this and that? And their responses were, uh, well, the media says this, and then it gets retweets, and, and we get this big group that says this person should be banned, and so then we look at it, and then we take action. And it didn't matter whether it was like a conservative or a liberal issue, they just had this, you know, these systems in place to uh, what they, how they handle those situations. And so they're talking about all this going on, and, and this idea of groupthink keeps getting brought up, and groupthink, groupthink. I thought, man, that's no, like, they're talking about it like it's a new idea. And here, as we walk through this narrative of what's going on in this story, that group think isn't really something that's new. It happened to Jesus when the crowds welcomed him into the city and they were all excited. And then later on, the crowds turn on Jesus and shout, crucify him. Here we see it happening to Paul and Barnabas where the crowds are excited and people come into faith and people are uh, being brought, you know, the gospel brought to them. And so... This wishy-washy crowd and this group think when, when the crowd kind of goes with it and, and they're just kind of moving whichever way. And so it's not really a new idea. It's just it's a, a new platform that people have now. And so I looked up what group think is and it actually came up in, in the Merriam-Webster's dictionary site. And it, it, what's the word? It defines it, that's the word I'm looking for, as a pattern of thought characterized by self-deception forced manufacture of consent and conformity to group values and ethics. Okay, I, when I look at definitions like that, I'm like, huh? So I started Googling more and figuring out, and I got onto psychology today and asked, what is groupthink? And so it gives me a similar definition of what it is, but it tags on there, it often leads to irrational decision-making. And I was like, huh, 
That's interesting. And I see that in you know, all, a lot of scripture going on when there's big crowds and they're gathered and it's not this, you know, new idea that Twitter's dealing with right now. It's something that's always been going on. And so it leads to this irrational decision making. So as we continue on in the narrative, I'm going to pick up where we left off. I want you to listen for a group think. I want you to pay attention to where there might be some group thinking going on. So we're going to get back to the story now. And we're back in Lystra, and there Paul is preaching. He's preaching the gospel, and he's sitting there preaching, and there's a crippled man that comes. And he's, well, I can't say he really comes, but maybe he was already there. I can't, you know, he's crippled. He didn't just get up and walk there. But there's a crippled man there, and it says that he was crippled from birth, and he's there listening. And he, and Paul sees this. He takes notice, and Paul says, looking intently at him, he could see that he had faith. Now we heard about this faith last week in Chris's sermon when the man came to Jesus and he said, you don't even need to come. And Jesus healed his servant. So Paul could see that faith to make him well that this man had. And Paul says, stand upright on your feet. And the ESV Bible, which I read out of, doesn't say that he like, you know, slowly got up, climbed to his feet, grabbed onto a handrail and worked his way up. No, it says he sprang up. So God, Paul sees the faith, tells him, stand upright on your feet, and he springs up. And in this happening, people take notice. The crowds see and they gather and they are amazed and they say, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. They start perceiving them as, as uh, gods. And they get excited, and the priest of Zeus comes, and he brings an ox, some, some oxen to slaughter as a sacrifice. So they're excited. They think that Zeus and Hermes have come down in flesh, and that they were going there. They were going to, uh, you know, rid them of whatever it is that Zeus and Hermes supposedly do. But they were there to. Um, they were excited, and the crowds start gathering, and they're praising these guys and giving them, uh, you know, all the glory. And what's, what happens next is Paul and Barnabas, I put Hulk out here in my notes. Like Hulkamania Hulk out. Not like Big Green Monster Hulk out, but like uh, Hollywood Hulk Hogan or just Hulk Hogan. And uh, they Hulk out, and it says they tore their garments. And it's, it's like a sign of anguish. They grab their, ah, what are you doing? And they tear their shirts, and they... Uh, they tell them, like, no, 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 we, we also are men. We're not gods. We're, you know, turn from these vain things. Turn to a living God. And in verse 17, it says, He did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. So he's like, look at all these signs and wonders that he's given you guys. He is a good God. He is a living God. Quit following these vain things. And so he plead, they plead with them. And they end up, and it says that they scarcely held them off from offering sacrifices. So they were barely able to hold them off from offering a sacrifice. And so it kind of seems like maybe the crowd has settled a little bit. The crowd is um, not so much into bringing them all the praise and glory that they're kind of uh, slowed down in their way of thinking about them. And then, like, I just imagine it, 
what the text says next, um, that the Jews came marching in, and like as I'm reading this, I got like the Imperial March from Star Wars, dun, 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 dun. and they're come marching in, and they came in from Iconium and Antioch, where Paul and Barnabas were just, uh, you know, ran out of, and the Jews come in, come marching in, and they're able to persuade the crowd. They're able to persuade the crowd into doing something irrational. They were, Paul was stoned and he was drug out of the city and he was left there and it said that they they were supposing he was dead. The man who was once the transgressor is the transgressed. He's stoned and left for dead. The tables have turned. The crowd has turned. They have, uh, they have turned their sights against what he is doing and going around with whatever comes their way. And it says that he was laying there left for dead and the disciples gathered around him and he rose up. He rose up and he marched back into the city. The next day he moved on to uh, Derby, and then eventually went back to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. And this is where, like, I picture Paul getting stoned, and he's laying there, and, like, the disciples and all his friends are gathered around, like, this was the dude. What, now what are we going to do? And then all of a sudden, like, you hear Paul, like, oh, oh, and he's, he gets back up, and he's just like, oh, oh there we go. And he marches back into the city. He marches back into the very places that threatened to kill him, the very places that praised him as a god, and the very places that actually stoned him and left him for dead. Here's what Paul and Barnabas were persistent in. They were persistent in preaching the good news. And having narrowly escaped once, and then Paul being stoned and left for dead, got up and kept on the mission. And that is just, that to me is just some commitment to the gospel. And as uh, I think about like this mission that they have, this mission that they've set out upon. And I think of, uh, you know, I listened to, like I told you, I listened to a lot of podcasts, and I listened to one. Um, with a um, young Marine, uh, his name was Dakota Meyer. And he just wrote a book called Into the Fire. And he was a sniper in the Marines. And he was like, just worked his way up the ranks. And he was really good at what he did in the Marines. And he worked himself onto like a special task force team of four men. And they, they were... They were like the bee's knees. Like he had it all together. He was their tactical missions planner. Anything that had to do with, uh, you know, guns and firing and, and defending themselves or if they knew they were marching into a dangerous area, he knew like, hey, here's the high point. Here's this, here's this. And each team member had different strengths, but he was to protect the group. That was his mission. And they were getting ready to set out on this mission and they were going into a, a village and there was all these special task force teams that were going to be going in together. And he, he didn't like the way that the commanding officer was setting it, up, setting it up. And he points out, hey, there's high points here. There's high, there's high ground here. There's this here. Our guys will get trapped here. We should not go about it this way. This is my suggestion. And his commanding officer responded, you're an E4. 
what do you know about missions planning? And he kicked him off the mission. So he was, left, he, he was left behind to watch the vehicles as they were going in. And he was the only one, uh, him and one other driver, uh, the, like the mechanic for all the vehicles to make sure everything ran properly, were the two guys left in the vehicles. And he, he just had an uneasy feeling as he was going in. And he told his, his three team members his mission was to make sure they came out alive. And he was committed to that. And he, they go in, and not 10 minutes into after they march into this village, he starts hearing gunfire, and he starts getting anxious and worried, and he's just listening to it go on, and he'd been in Afghanistan for a few years, and he knew, like, okay, it's just an ambush. It'll die down in 10 minutes. It'll all be good. He'll go in there, get his guys, and everything's good. He said about an hour and a half later, it was still, they were just still pounding. He could hear the, the gunfire was just as heavy as it was before. There were mortars going off. And he was, he was asking for permission to go in to save his guys. And that day there were 90 Afghan soldiers that were fighting with him, that were on his side. And then there was his team of three men, and then there was um, some other teams there. And so he, he's sitting here listening, and after about like three hours, three and a half hours, he finally decides like he's not going to get the permission that he's expecting to go in, and he asks the driver, the, uh, the mechanic, are you with me? And he tells him, devil dog, I'm with, you, I'm with you till the death. So they go in, and they start marching in, and they hop in a Humvee, and he's sitting inside, and he's committed to going in and saving his guys, and he says he's sitting there, and he's in the, like the 50 cal gun, and all it's poking out is his face. And he's going down the, they're going down the road, and he's hearing stuff hit. Ping, ping, ping. And he says he's just waiting for death to hit him. He's waiting for death to take him. And so he's marching in, and as they go in, and he's, his mission is to save his team and bring them out. As he's going into the village, there's men running out. And so he's throwing guys into the vehicle, and they're taking them back out. And then he's going back in, and they're throwing people in and taking them out. And he's just going, doing this back and forth, and they're calling for air support. And nothing's happening. Nothing's working in their favor. And it's just this perfect storm of, of, of bad things happening to them. And he goes, and finally some air support comes in. And he says, as they're going in, these helicopters are low enough to where he can reach and grab the bottom of them. And they're, they're covering him. He's throwing guys in, and then they're going back out. Well, somebody finally lets him know that, hey, we spotted your team over in such and such trench by this place. And uh, he runs over there, and he, he, look, he, he gets up to the trench, and his whole team is dead. He was there. He was supposed to be there. That was his mission. He had one mission to complete, and that was to get his guys out safely. And he still, like today, he says now his mission is to make sure that their story lives on. He's committed to that mission of them still living. So Paul and Barnabas have this same commitment to the gospel. They understood that being a disciple of Christ meant total commitment. That Paul knew that he no longer belonged to himself, but to Jesus whom we are also called to suffer. Paul accepted reje rejection. He embraced the hostility. He did not live for what the crowds thought of him. He lived for what Jesus thought of him. He did not make decisions so people would like him. He made decisions so that people would love Jesus. 
And I get back into thinking of this group think. And also this word that's thrown around is rage culture, that we live in a rage culture that uh, you get somebody upset and you can get a bunch of people on board to be upset too and you get somebody fired, you can get somebody banned from Twitter, kicked off Facebook, thrown away from YouTube and that's the worst thing that can happen to you. And so what can we take away from Paul's story? Why this verse 21 and 22 that stuck out to me? Well, we can see here there's a couple traps set for Paul and Barnabas. And we are not any... uh, less susceptible to these same traps. Trap of praise and the trap of criticism. It's easy to be wavered by one or the other. It would have been real easy for Paul to cower, to say, to heck with this, I'm out of here. I ain't getting, I'm not, I'm not putting up with this stonings and threatenings and, and all that. And it would have been real easy for him to just abandon it and stop the spread of the gospel. It probably would have been even easier for him to continue on as people thinking that he's a god. Probably would have bought a, a, a comfortable life, maybe riches. It would have been real easy for him to go on in that way. Yet, here we are. Ready, let's try that again. You guys, let's do some participation. That's the name of our sermon. Ready? It would have been real easy for him to just be filled with riches and this easy life. Yet, boom. Yet, here we are. 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. I didn't put it up on the board, but take note. 1 Corinthians 11.1 1 says this, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. I remember reading this um, a while back with Tony and Chris, and we were talking about the Apostle Paul, and, um, and I, I told Tony and Chris, I said, that's some cojones. Like, be imitators of me. As, and I was like, I can imagine telling you guys like to be an imitator of me. It just scares the crap out of me because I think I'm a terrible person. But I'm like, that, is, that takes some cojones. And but the one I realized though is that Paul's identity isn't found in being the apostle Paul, being this great speaker, being this great man. His identity is found in Christ. Paul went back because his identity was in Christ. He went back to strengthen the souls of the new believers and he went back to encourage the saints to continue in the faith because of who he is in Christ. He went back to tell the people that they're going to go through tribulations, but we must enter the kingdom of God. Paul knew this truth that came out of Jesus' very own mouth and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first as Matthew 19, 29, and 30. He knew that there's a much better treasure. There's a much better better treasure than than the praises of somebody else. There's a much better, better treasure than running off and doing our own will because we're scared. He knew because of the work that was done on the cross. He knew the work that Jesus did on the cross. And that's who his identity was found in, in Christ. So I'm going to be honest and uh, open with you guys and 
oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Vulnerable. And maybe you guys have picked up on this, but I am a very insecure person. I put on a dang good front, but I am a very insecure person. We did the five love language test, and would you guess it? My love language is words of affirmation. So I got on and I looked up on the five love languages. What does words of affirmation mean? And, and to be that kind of uh, person and have your love, love language. And it says, actions don't always speak louder than words. If this is your love language, unsolicited compliments mean the world to you. Hearing the words, I love you, are important. Hearing the reasons behind that love sends your spirits skyward. Insults can leave you shattered and are not easily forgotten. Kind, encouraging, and positive words are truly life-giving. And I think about that word, those words of affirmation. And just to share with you, like when I, um, when I know I'm preaching, when I'm going to get up here to preach, uh, I, I went back to doing this before I preach because I get so anxious. And I worry about the message. Like, what are people going to think? What are they going to say? Is it going to be a terrible message? This and that. And I get, I was like having a mini, I get like a, an anxiety attack thinking about all those things. And when I, you know, words of affirmation, when somebody says something, I had, a, you know, I share, I've shared this before, but um, this person doesn't attend church here anymore. But I was once told that um, I'm not equipped to be up here preaching. And I remember like just being cut to the core, like, oh man, what am I doing? I struggle with um, my calling as a leader that I'm a, a sufficient leader and, and that, you know, this, this words of affirmation, love language really speak truth to me. And it's hard. And I wrestle with it all like too much probably. But my insecurities, my insecurities can be an invitation from God. My insecurities can be an invitation to, to escape from who the world says I should be. That if I'm in Christ, I can escape who the world says I should be as a husband. that I can escape who the world says I should be as a father, that I can escape who the world says I can, I can be as a Christian, escape who the world says I should be as a pastor, to escape who the world says I should be as an employee, as a friend, as a customer, as a musician, the list could go on and on and on and on, that I can, I, this insecurity is an invitation for me to escape from that and to be in Christ. So what does it look like to be in Christ? I got a bunch of verses here that we don't have on the board, um, but I'm going to ask you to follow along and look them up if you've got a phone or a Bible. The first one, first one is Ephesians 1.4. What does it look like to be in Christ? Ephesians 1.4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. We were chosen by God before the creation of the world. That's one, that's one, one way it looks like to be in Christ. 
My identity isn't in these other things, but I was chosen before creation. Romans 8, 38 and 39. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor, nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are loved with an inseparable love. You're loved with an inseparable love. That in Christ you are loved with an inseparable love. 2 Timothy 1.9 Who saved us and called us to a holy calling? Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. We were given grace. We've been given grace. How good is that to know that this God that uh, you know, came down, he gave us grace. We're going to jump back to Ephesians 1, 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. We are redeemed and forgiven of our sins. You are redeemed and forgiven of your sins. That's what it, that's what it looks like to be in Christ. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We have hope of eternal life in Christ Jesus. Second Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, I have been found guilty, but in Christ I am justified and made righteous. Philippians 4.19, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. He will supply you with everything that you need. Oh, I lost my, here we go. Galatians 3.26, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. And then 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. I am a new creation. You are a new creation. First Corinthians fifteen twenty two. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall be made alive. And I took this quote from uh, John Piper, how to uh, kind of sum this up a little better than I could do. It says, all those united to Adam in the first humanity die. All those united to Christ in the new humanity rise to live again. It doesn't end here. Romans 8, 1 and 2. Therefore, now no condemnation. Man. Therefore... There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. We are set free. Set free in those things. 
So that's a little bit of what it looks like to be in Christ. That's a little bit of what Paul knew, what Paul had, because he wrote all these things. That's what an identity in Christ looks like. And you could go on and on and read your Bible and figure out more of what it looks like to have an identity in Christ. But those are just some points that picked out, I picked out and stuck out to me. That that's what it looks like to have an identity in Christ and to be in Christ. So how do we get into it? How do we get into being in Christ? God does it. God's done it. It's done. Through faith, Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Faith is a gift. So this invitation... We're invited to escape those things and to find who I am, I look to who he is. I become my true self in him and him alone. What a gift. What a gift that is, that I'm no longer a slave to my words of affirmation and love language, but that I can be set free in Christ. In a minute, we're going to, Paige, if you'll come up and start playing, um, we're going to take communion here in a minute, and uh, we're going to do things a little differently this morning. We're going to go back to, um, you guys coming up, Move the remote. Don't steal the remote. Uh, ask you guys to come up, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to start, we're going to start playing the music, and we're going to hit the lights, and I ask you to take a moment. Take a moment and pray. We're going to sing the song, Come As You Are, and take a moment before you come up, and just think about the work that was done on the cross. Reflect and remember what Jesus did that you're set free and you can have your identity be in Christ. That's open to you. That's an invitation. And when you feel fit, when you feel ready, go ahead and come up and you can get your, your elements and take them back to your seat and you can pray over them and take them whenever you feel is best fit for you. And while we're playing too, um, Tony uh, Martinez and Kara Marshall, they're going to be back at the back of the church for us today. If anybody needs prayer, if anybody needs to be reminded that their identity is in Christ, if anybody needs to be reminded of the hope that there is in Jesus, don't ignore that feeling. Get up and go ask for prayer. Maybe you're sitting next to somebody and you just feel the Holy Spirit just calling you to ask them, like, hey, do you need to go prayer? I'll go with you. But we're going to ask them to come up. So take a minute as we're doing these things and when you feel ready to start singing when you feel ready to come take your communion go ahead and do so and if you feel led to go back and pray just get up and wander as you will